0: Periodic, periodic t- Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs,
1: and I'm Deanna Reasonover.
0: This is Periodic
1: Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, even virtual reality.
0: Yes, it's STEM for those of us who like their nat geo with some ice cream. And boy, oh boy, do I like ice cream.
1: Man, don't even give me start on ice cream. Mm-mm-mm. Although I do like vegan ice cream now.
0: Oh, yes, I do as well. Do you have a favorite brand of vegan ice cream? Anything that does not make me fart. Very much the same.
1: Actually, that is the fastest way to make friends in L.A., is start talking about (laughs) vegan ice (laughs) creams. Do
0: you have a favorite vegan ice cream flavor? I'll always
1: go with chocolate. Mm. Oh, you know what? There's this little place called Yoga-Ert that I'm tempted to send you a pint of. Ooh, my week's
0: looking up. So what's new? Well, I have gotten interested in hummingbirds this week. Do tell. Well, I feel like I've seen more hummingbirds lately, or maybe I'm just looking for them now. But I've always loved hummingbirds. As a child, I announced to my mother one year that I wanted to be a ruby-throated hummingbird for Halloween, and she found (gasps) someone to make me the costume.
1: Okay. Every week, can we just talk about the, like, really cute costumes that you had your mom make you because you were like <laughs>
0: little Tyrannosaurus
1: Rex and a <laughs> ruby-throated hummingbird?
0: <laughs> we're going to run out soon, but I'm more than happy to talk you through all of the animals I trust as for Halloween over the years.
1: <laughs> Did your mom let you just eat sugar that day, too?
0: Oh, no, no, it wouldn't have gone that far. No, I grew up in the the no sugar cereal household. Did you, were you allowed to eat sugar cereals growing up? Um,
1: So one time we were in the store and I said to my mom, I said, mom, I want Lucky Charms. And she was like, no. And I was like, incredulous. And I was like, why not? And she was like, because you're just going to eat the marshmallows. And I was like, yes, that's what I've asked for.
0: (laughs) Uh, yes. And as a child of divorce, then when I went to my dad's, all I did was eat Lucky Charms and eat
1: <laughs> only the marshmallows. I never got them. Maybe I should go buy them for myself.
0: I, I'd um, rather eat that vegan ice cream that you're talking about at this point.
1: I did a nerdy thing today, which is I baked biscuits. Ooh. And yeah, 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 they're really good. Um, and I am using a cookbook called Jubilee by Tony Tipton Martin, and it's recipes from two centuries of African-American cooking. My dad is from Tennessee, and I always use his biscuit recipe, always. But I had leftover buttermilk from a recipe I made earlier in the year, and I was just trying to finish off the buttermilk. So I said, I'll make buttermilk biscuits. And in the book, she teaches you that you should use a little bit of baking soda as a stabilizer when you have buttermilk because it's so much more acidic. Uh, and I was like, oh, yes, okay, great. Now I know how to improvise a little bit because not that this recipe isn't great, but now I feel confident that I can use either this recipe or adapt my dad's recipe, which I'm very excited about.
0: I love how much chemistry is involved in baking. Yes,
1: uh, by fault of not Tony Tipton Martin, but by my own fault, they weren't as flaky as they could have been. There weren't as okay. many layers. So that's my bad.
0: I've learned through casual viewing of Great British Bake Off that is it like where you put the cold butter in between the layers and you fold it and fold it? Is that how you get the flakiness?
1: Kind of. Well, that's that's called lamination, I have learned. Yes. Um, this is actually where you get bits of butter. You want the butter to kind of coat the flour ah. um, because the fat coating the flour Um, provide some more tenderness, I believe. I'm not exactly sure. So it's instead of like layers of it, you want more like little pockets of butter.
0: Got it. I've also seen that on Great British (laughs) Bake
1: You know what? Did I tell you that I joined a bean club?
0: No. You've really fallen in love with beans, haven't you?
1: You know what? Yes, I have absolutely fallen in love with a shelf-stable, complete protein that is the powerhouse of a bean. I will send you vegan ice cream, And beans. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is all wildly fascinating. I could talk about this for a very long time, but we should probably get to your interview that you did this week. Can you tell us who you're talking to?
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. It was really great. It was with MIT Mm -hmm. graduate Arua Michelle Mboya. She got a master's degree from the MIT Media Lab. Uh, The MIT Media Lab is a research laboratory that draws from technology, media, science, art, and design. Uh, And when I did this interview... She was kind of in a transition period, but now she works as an XR product designer, XR being extended reality. Uh, now, extended reality is a kind of an umbrella term. It captures augmented, virtual, and mixed reality technologies. Now, Arua has been doing a lot of research specifically in Kenya with women and girls. But there's another reason why I want to talk to her, because Arua is still figuring out what she wants to do with her life and career.
0: That's so interesting. Yes. You know, on this show, I really want to talk to innovative thinkers who aren't fully established in their fields. I mean, it sounds like Aru is at a really interesting part of her journey, even though you're saying that it's just beginning.
1: Yeah, it's actually really kind of wonderful to hear her figuring out her purpose.
0: Oh, this is so exciting. I cannot wait to hear your interview. Oh, I can't wait to hear it either. I haven't heard it yet. All right, let's take a listen.
1: So my first question for you, I've noticed that you seem like a very curious person. Where did you think that curiosity began?
2: I mean, I grew up, so I grew up in Nairobi. I grew up in Kenya. And something that my dad used to do with us a lot was go on safaris whenever we had like holidays or breaks. And he was a wildlife fanatic and would make us remember all the different types of giraffe and the different types of antelope and zebra and like we were those kids who like had all the specific names for each spots on a leopard but he also like wouldn't like to just give it to us would sort of be like guess or like figure it out or what do you think I don't know I just when you asked me that question I just remember myself as a child like going on these safaris and like being so curious because all you're doing is sitting in a car and like looking out for animals and trying to figure out like where they would be and what they would be doing. So maybe maybe a little bit from that. I would definitely say my dad. He was a really curious person.
1: That's such a cool place for your curiosity to begin. Well, so you grew up in Nairobi. What made you want to move all the way to the States, Connecticut specifically, and go to Yale for an undergraduate degree?
2: it was growing up watching my aunt's nonprofit send girls to the United States to study. So like, you know, when I was 10 years old, I was volunteering with these, with this nonprofit, like we would go to cyber cafes and use like dial up internet to help underrepresented girls, like apply to college in the United States. And I would just grew up hearing all these amazing stories about girls who've come from like really difficult backgrounds and then going to Harvard or going to MIT. And then like, making like a huge difference in their communities so that made me want to study in the U.S. and then as I was getting older like the U.K. and all the other options were I felt like really limiting in that like I I did want a liberal arts education because I just have never known what I wanted to do with my life and America was kind of the place you go if you don't know what you want to do so (laughs) that was like you know if you could if you can get there and Yeah, I just was really attracted to the idea that I could go to college without having to figure out exactly what I wanted to study.
0: That's amazing. When did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Was there a moment of clarity or did you like approach the end of high school still trying to figure out what you wanted to do?
1: I was definitely still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Well, to clarify, I wanted to act. I didn't think it was possible or probable that I would be doing it. So I was trying to figure out Okay, what is the thing that I'm going to do um, that will actually make me money? What about you?
0: I think I knew I wanted to act when I was probably nine years old. But then I also had, is this a practical career? I should probably apply to liberal arts colleges in addition to acting conservatories, because what if I don't get into any of the acting conservatories and I, I felt I felt kind of conflicted. What was your backup plan or what, what was your plan for making money? Oh, I had
1: a fail-safe major uh, lined up. English. <laughs> <laughs> and why is virtual reality why is virtual reality a thing that you're interested in exploring?
2: Um, my first interaction with it with it was seeing it not necessarily as a storytelling tool, but I think there's a lot of amazing storytelling um opportunity there but as um, an accessibility tool and a mobility tool as well like I think my first interest in it was seeing like what you could do in new spaces if your mobility is somewhat limited so if you're living in a place where you don't have access to travel to learn complex phenomena to experience certain things Uh, and so that's why i was interested in it but obviously like vr and the entire xr industry right now is seeing a lot of rises and falls and rises and falls And everyone thinks this is the time for virtual reality everyone's going to be in headsets Uh, but i think the design of the both those the experiences and the hardware is being tackled by such a limited subset of the population that you end up with headsets that don't fit people, that you end up Mm. with experiences that are kind of like meh. Um, So my my goal and my hopes is that I can be like a different voice in the space and show that like spatial computing can be used for good and also can work if designed more inclusively. When I came to MIT, to the Media Lab, I wanted to... To work with emerging technologies in informal settlements in Nairobi, because I was trying to ask this question of like, what are the extents of emerging technologies, and that like, can they be uh, modified and applied to environments that they weren't necessarily designed for, and like, can there be other use cases so that you know we don't just keep increasing the digital divide what we do is like if we're building something new and making sure that it's inclusive and accessible and so my work was always going to take place in Kenya like I, even my in at Yale like I both my theses were based in Nairobi and so I wanted to see how women in informal settlements like interact with virtual reality. And that's where the Oculus came in.
1: You and I know what an Oculus is, but can we get a description of just basically in the most basic terms, what an Oculus is?
2: Yeah, so the Oculus is, so what I'll just say, Oculus in general is a company that is owned by Facebook and they build virtual reality uh, products. And so there are a a variety of different, headsets that Oculus has, but the one that I'm talking about is the Oculus Go, which is the most lightweight and affordable one on the market. Um, But the problems that I'm also talking about are not just specific to the Oculus Go. Pretty much all virtual reality headsets from Google and from Microsoft have the same problem. When I was doing this study, which running like 200 women through this experience that i had built in vr um i couldn't even get them to like really enjoy the experience cuz then the headset kept breaking cuz i was like oh actually this really wasn't designed not just like for kenya but just black women in general or just anyone else with more diverse hair and so that's how i ended up like redesigning the the strap system that it kind of that project kind of happened by mistake this inconvenience that just kept coming up I was like well it can't be that hard to do this and everyone was like oh my god wow this is amazing And I was like okay this is not the first product that doesn't work for black hair like black women have been struggling with products for a long time you know like just being general baseball caps swim cap I was a swimmer and when I was a kid and it was like so hard because mm-hmm. I could never fit my braids into swim cap or like helmets and so out of that work developing a black hair usability index, which is some an instrument or framework that designers or manufacturers of any hairwear or headwear that they want to make inclusive, can ask itself these questions or run users through a study and then get them to answer the questions and see, does this work for them? You know, then we can go and redesign or iterate on this based on, this, on these findings.
1: I know you can't hear it while I'm interviewing her, but uh, I'm actually nodding the whole time because I've had these experiences. I've had the experiences that she's talking about. I personally had not tried VR. I had the opportunity to try VR a couple times. And every time it was in a public setting, um, like at an art installation or a gallery, and I did not ever try it because I knew it wouldn't work for my hair. Hmm. And it, I feel like it sounds vain to be like, I didn't want my hair to get messed up, but it's not that. It's like, I didn't want it to get tangled and it's embarrassing. You don't want people to have to like come over and, oh, you broke it or it's stuck in your hair or like, oh, it's hiding. You're hiding it in your hair. It's really an issue. I, d- I don't know if I ever asked you what exactly the VR project that you were doing that prompted this. I don't know if I ever exactly asked you what it was. The
2: research itself. Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, it was my thesis. It was a project called Allo I. Um, Aloe is means other, and I stood for imagination. I was trying to see whether uh, certain types of virtual ex- experiences could lead to more imaginative language about the future in general. So I built an experience and put people through it and built a, you know, there was a couple of different experiences and some were not even in VR, some were like, you know, just reading a a story and then participating in like an imagination exercise, which was just a way of seeing how big your worldview is by what you can imagine for yourself and how far like your ideas deviate from the norm. Mm
1: For the project, one really cool VR experience that Arua created is a safari. And you would think that everyone in Kenya would have access to that. But as far as Arua knows, because of income inequality, not everyone gets to experience a safari. So she created a safari VR experience for the women and the girls in a more economically disadvantaged area to experience.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, so do you use
2: like some statistical and machine learning tools to analyze like huge amounts of texts that came out of the experience, to see um, what the effects of different VR and storytelling tools were, and had some really really exciting results come out. Namely that, you know, VR can be used not just as an empathy machine, but also an imagination machine, and um, used the work and the the data to develop some indexes of understanding, okay, what is an imagination machine? Like, what does that look like? And, you know, who are the types of people who would be interested in something like this? And what's, what's his potential in general?
1: Hey, listen, let's pause this conversation with a real right quick. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis. Go green with solar panels or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity Line of Credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.
0: And we're back.
1: Uh, I really related to your paper about the Oculus, about how important it was for people to see new experiences Mm -hmm. because it made them seem possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. What do you think it is about VR specifically that makes things feel more possible than, say, like a film or a TV show?
2: As much as I'm in VR, I'm also like a VR skeptic. Like, I'm I'm not one of those people that thinks like it's so special, but I think that it has the capacity because it's, it's, you know, it's almost fully sensory and now like people are doing crazy shit where you can like do VR underwater. And so the ability to be able to occupy a space, a world, an idea that puts that image in your mind. And that's how like we remember, which is how we dream. Right. So like, Mm. you know, once your brain has seen watermelon, if you're trying to remember watermelon, it'll like go back to when you last saw that and or whatever imagery has been concocted in your brain about watermelon, which is like it's round and red and green. And then um, it'll like shine a light on that part of your brain for however long you need to remember it. And then you can do whatever you want with that thought. And that's kind of the same, that's kind of like what you can get in VR. You can have like an experience that you couldn't otherwise imagine before or have in your mind before, um, but your brain internalizes as real and full you know, people do like virtual field trips and stuff. And I think those are fun for kids um, and in education. But I still think that there's probably so many use cases that we haven't even tapped into in the space because it's not as open as it could be as other platforms are right now. Like we don't have like virtual reality influencers, you know, (laughs) like that's not even got to that place yet. But it should be able to get to the space that people are able to, like, create their own content in it, right?
1: Yeah, but but when they do, I know it's all going to be, like, diet teas and, like, (laughs) butt cream. Well,
2: hopefully, like, the people who set the trends will be really interesting people. Like, I think that's the goal. It's, like, VR is so niche right now that, like, everyone in it is kind of interesting anyway. But, yeah, it would be cool to see, like, what that could look like if it was more global, if it was just more diverse in general. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so if you became a VR influencer, what type of content would you make?
1: Like, kind of what would be my branding? Yes. I think we all know that my brand is beans. Boy, do (laughs) I love beans. Love cooking beans.
0: I knew you were going to say that. Even before I asked the question, I knew it. It's it's my brand because it's my brand.
1: (laughs) No, you know what it is? I just didn't realize there were so many heirloom varieties. And, you know, there's different cooking techniques, recipes. You can get different textures. I was limited before and now I have been set free.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what if you had a VR experience where you could like be with the beans as they're growing?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Or you know what you could even eat them virtually, a fart-free experience. I think it would get more (laughs) people into the beans. If you were a VR influencer, what kind of content are you making?
0: Well, going back to my interest this week in hummingbirds, what if you felt like you could like be a hummingbird flying through the air?
1: That is actually very cool. I think you got a career in VR. You do as well. Hashtag bean (laughs) content. No, nobody wants my bean experience. (laughs) I'm kind of interested in why you like to center your work uh, on women and girls. And why specifically women and girls in Kenya?
2: Because it's just always been how I have seen the world. It's just always been how I've understood the world. I grew up in Kenya, which is a patriarchal society. So that's like the larger context. And then the smaller context is that I grew up in a household of really strong, loud, opinionated women. And so I've always had a really strong sense of self as a woman, but understood that in the context outside of my family, that that wasn't the case for everybody. I just saw that how in Kenya and the rest of the world, like the female child, the girl child was um, suffering in many different ways. And then, like I said, my my aunt started a nonprofit that was specifically working with women, and I grew up under that uh, context for the majority of my like you know really young developing years. So from like ten to eighteen, I grew up working in those types of spaces. And so it just made it really easy for me. I don't know. It just, it just seemed like the only thing I could do was to like work with women almost like it just Hmm. felt like the most natural and um, I've always been passionate about it. And my sister and I ended up starting our own nonprofit when we were finishing uh, high school that also was working with girls in, in informal settlements. And so I, you know, I think it was just like a trend set from like being raised in a family of women and, and then watching how they gave back to other communities of women.
1: Will you tell me more about the nonprofit you and your
2: sister started? Yeah, it's not, it's no longer, um, but it was called Sachana, which, which means girl in Swahili, I should say, for people who don't know that. Um, you know, the first couple of years we were just going into the slums, working in schools um, providing mentorship, scholarships, that sort of thing. Um, because for us, it was also a learning process. Like we were young, we didn't know anything. We hadn't grown up in the slums either. So wanted to make sure that our entry into there and our work there was wanted. But as we got older and spent more time there, we started pinpointing specific problems and you know sexual assault and violence is one of them Um, and so the last thing that we did and worked on was designing an app for girls to understand and report cases of sexual violence and that was a really big undertaking because we were like you know there's a lot of NGOs in the space who are doing really good work and we didn't want to uh, try to pretend that we knew more than them, but also recognize that there was a, a lack of space to talk about the issues, to understand how you would go about dealing with it once it happened or once you heard something had happened. Um so that was the goal, It, you know, we developed the app, we, we designed the app and developed the app and have since then redesigned it several times. And right now we're like trying to work on seeing how we can like push it back in, but we we kind of like didn't want to have that app running while we were both living in the United States and not able to like actually be there and actually see what was happening. Mm-hmm.
0: That's such a wide range of things that she's worked on, from the app to the VR, and I love hearing what Aru is thinking and the various paths she's considering. These questions she's asking are really illuminating, and I like knowing what feels important to her. There are so many options for Aru at this point.
1: Absolutely. And she is still early on her journey, and she says she doesn't quite know what she wants to do, but it's interesting to look at that uh, difference where it's like, you might not know exactly where it is you're going, but each step along the way, you know, you're really making progress. Yeah. And you're really, you know, doing things, which, you know, you can see her in her nonprofit and her work with the Oculus. It all is leading up to something.
0: And it was also interesting, you know, talking about her family and the way she grew up and how that's um, impacted her work and what she's doing. Do you feel that in your life?
1: I think in a way. Yeah. My mom wanted to be an actor. No way. Um, maybe not professionally, but she liked acting and she still loves telling me in very detail uh, the plot of movies she's seen. She'll take 10 minutes to tell you the first 30 minutes of of a plot, and then she'll be like, yeah, and then, like, I don't know, I guess he got the girl back. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Tell me more. I feel like Taken has so many more twists and turns than that. Like, she just tells you the first act. Um, (laughs) What about you?
0: You know, that's so funny that you say that, because both of my parents said that to me after I became a professional actor. Really? Yes. Wait, in so, what context? My dad and my mom both said to me that they had wanted to become actors, which I had never really heard them say before when I was growing up, and neither one of them pursued it. Oh.
1: No, I, I very quickly realized that you were talking about uh, about acting, but when you initially said your parents said the same thing to you, I thought that they also very poorly explained the plot of Taken. And I was like, <laughs> it's a real problem. They've got to, parents have got to learn to summarize Taken. <laughs> Is it okay if we talk a little bit about MIT and kind of some of the stuff that's happened there, like with Joichi Ito? And is it okay if we talk about that?
2: Yeah, sure. We can talk a little bit about
1: it. Okay, great. So first off, can we explain a little bit about what the MIT Media Lab controversy with uh, Jeffrey Epstein was?
2: MIT, the Media Lab specifically, which is where I was studying, um, had a scandal because we discovered that our director had been secretly taking funds from Jeffrey Epstein. And it was something that I chose to speak out against. I just thought that that sort of negligence represented something more structural and uh, problematic than, you know, a singular mistake. And yeah.
1: I think it's great that you spoke up and that it's so many areas of your life you've felt compelled to and have been able to kind of speak up for girls and for women.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how to explain it. Like it just, it was like, when it happened, I was like, oh, this is the logical thing for me to do. And my mother was like, you do not write anything. You are on a visa and I will whoop your ass if you, (laughs) if you start getting involved in things that have nothing to do with you. Um, And I was like, mom, literally like, I do this because you are this way. Like, <laughs> I am I am me because you are you, you know? And like, um, it was tough, like, because even my my mother didn't want me to, to write stuff and because I'm her child and she didn't want anything bad to happen to me and we would sacrificed a lot for me to be able to study at MIT. Um, but then also I was like, everything that I've been taught by her and all the women around me, says like be bold speak up take up space you know just be that person so I just went ahead and did it
1: I also heard you talk a lot about you know going into schools and mentoring Mm -hmm. other girls Uh, is there any woman that you look up to right now that you consider a mentor
2: oh yeah so many like that's my, my friends make fun of me. Cause I'm like, I just pick up mentors all the time. I'm like, Will you be my mentor? <laughs> yes. Cause you just need people in your back pocket. Like I just realized how it's so nice to be able to ask for help. Um, but I, I guess I can say one is right now, I don't know if you know Sabrina Hersey. So she is awesome. She's like the founder of Be Bold Media and she just is this black woman who just reached out to me and was like, Hey, what you're going through sucks. Uh, I'm going to make a prize and give it to you. And I was like, what? Okay, sure. And she like did this whole thing, crowdfunded a whole prize, started the world prize and was like, and then suddenly just became a mentor. And I just loved how she was able to like see somebody in need, didn't know me at all, just read my story and then decided to get people to support me at a time that I was being like, kind of criticized and now we have the bold prize part two um the first year i won it and that was like you know really low-key and now like you know the three women getting it this year are both like are all like really respected in their in their careers and took on entire industries like google and pinterest and creating this culture of like black women speaking up and speaking truth to power as not radical, but like normal, is
0: is awesome. Have you had mentors like that in your life? People who've come into your life?
1: I'm still looking for a mentor. <laughs> uh, I asked someone a couple years back to be my mentor. Like I walked up the courage, and they were like, "No." <laughs> I got turned down. They were like, no, you don't need me. You're you're doing fine. You're like you're at the same level as me. And I was like, no, I'm not. So uh, I'm still working on that. Do you have a mentor?
0: Oh, gosh. You know, I, I've had people along the way. Um, I had an acting teacher in high school named Ingrid Sonicson, who was really a mentor to me. And I don't know that I would have become an actor without her. She really helped me see myself in a different way. And I feel like she told me a lot of stories that didn't necessarily feel intentional when I was in high school. But now I look back and realize that she was she was teaching me through telling me stories about her own life, which is pretty cool. That's
1: awesome. Do you know what I do sometimes? What? Sometimes I have what I call my secret mentors. Like, <laughs> I definitely look up to people. Like, I look up to Mark, and I look up to some of the producers and, like, Rocky Carroll. And they they don't know that my, they're my, my mentor. But I'll still, like, ask them questions. But I've never done the, like, you know, promposal, will you be my mentor <laughs> thing with them.
0: <laughs> Can you just say who Mark full full name for Mark, who Mark is for the list? Oh, I'm
1: sorry. Is everybody not on a first-name basis with Mark Harmon from NCIS? <laughs> Wow, I have been in California too long. <laughs> that was some primo name dropping right there. Um now, other question. So, uh, when you came to the US, uh, you didn't you said that you didn't necessarily know what you wanted to do or what you want to study and that's why it was important to have a liberal education. Um, do you feel like you have figured out what it is that you want to do <laughs> with your life? <laughs>
2: No, my mom was like, I knew it. I knew sending you to America, you would never have a plan. And I'm like, you're right. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Like, I'm still figuring out a lot of things. But I think I have learned, like, a couple of things about myself, which is that I love storytelling and I love activism, specifically for women and specifically women of color. Um, And so I just want to keep, like, in whatever work I'm doing, whether I'm working industry or, you know, doing some other thing or working for myself, like want to make sure that those two parts of my identity are like never compromised.
1: Is there any particular way you're going to continue to let specifically your curiosity lead you in down your career path?
2: Yeah. I mean, curiosity is a good one, but I think I've made the decision that I want to stay in the spatial computing space and AR VR and the main reason I'm staying in that space is because I'm just hella curious and like me like staying in like the product design experience space is exciting to me um and I feel like will feed a lot of my curiosity and then yeah and then I also just want to keep writing about women that's awesome yeah that's so cool yeah so we'll see I don't know
1: I mean, but that's okay. We talked earlier about how these experiences all shape us and they all kind of like contribute to who we are. And that's important.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true.
1: Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Thank you. Let's take one last break and then we've got a story about the origins of computer science.
0: We're back, and it's story time. This is the story of Ada Lovelace, who may have been the world's first computer programmer. She was way ahead of her time imagining what machines could do.
1: Let's set the scene. She was born in England in 1815.
0: And a lot was going on in the world. Here's some random highlights. Jane Austen is writing. She's published Pride and Prejudice a couple years ago.
1: Um, There's a bunch of wars that are happening globally.
0: But also the world just got its first commercial cheese factory. So it was a very big year in the history of cheese.
1: And I'm very big on cheese. So this is good. Uh, We're (laughs) also seeing a lot of new inventions like the steam locomotive. So Ada was born during this era.
0: And she's born to polar opposite parents. Her mom's
1: a super practical mathematician and her dad is a famous poet named Lord Byron. You may have heard of him. You may not have. It It doesn't matter. We're not here to talk about him.
0: They didn't stay together very long after she was born. Growing up, Ada's mom pushes her towards an education with private tutors, one of whom was a woman, and self-taught studies. Just editorializing here, but her mother may have been worried that Ada would turn out like her dad, creative but unreliable. But Ada doesn't turn out like either of her parents. I think she's somewhere in the middle. She's an imaginative girl that loves math, and she's especially drawn to creative innovation.
1: It was considered strange for a young woman to study mathematics in the 1830s because sexism, obviously. But also, let's be honest, Ada was white and her family probably had some money if they could afford a private tutor. Plus, she was able to make connections. And I just feel like it's important to be transparent here just to add some kind of context for some of the privilege that she did have at the time.
0: So we're getting closer to Ada's computer science stuff. She meets a mathematician, and inventor named Charles Babbage. This is a big deal because he'd eventually become known as the father of the computer.
1: So at 17, Ada meets Charles Babbage, and he's already got this wild new invention that he calls the difference machine. And it turns out to be a machine that can calculate math, which is exactly the kind of stuff Ada is interested in. There's a version of it based on the original design at London's Museum of Science.
0: It might not look exactly the same, but it's similar. So looking at the one in the museum, it looks like a metal structure with a series of columns. If you look closely, each column is made up of wheels with numbers on them. And don't ask me how that works, but it was designed to calculate math.
1: So Ada meets Charles, they get along, she learns about the difference machine, and eventually he shares his vision for his successor. It's an invention he'd eventually call... The analytical machine. Okay, I'm seeing a theme here in how he names his inventions. Yep, Picking it up.
0: (laughs) Ada is stoked about this new idea. This new design was supposed to be able to calculate even more complex math. And she's just imagining the possibilities. The idea of the analytical machine may have been closer to a general-purpose early computer, a really early computer, but it did have memory.
1: So the concept of the machine gets the attention of a French mathematician who writes an article about it. And Ada... Well, she decides to translate the article into English. But she goes a step further. In her own annotations, she explains how the machine could be programmed to compute
0: numbers. She is so thorough in diagramming the computations that it's essentially a computer algorithm. That's a set of rules or guidelines given to a computer by a programmer like Ada.
1: Oh, That's what an algorithm is.
0: Yes, yes. So the translated article, plus her own extensive and detailed notes, are published in 1843. So if Charles Baveridge invented
1: the precursor to the modern-day computer, then Ada Lovelace might have been the first computer programmer. She envisioned a machine that could go beyond computing numbers, one that could be used to handle anything within a fixed set of rules. That line of thinking is similar to how we use computers today.
0: So in the end, the analytical machine is never fully built. But Ada's writing is still some of the earliest known forms of computer science. And about a century later, her notes resurfaced as modern-day computers were being designed.
1: Some historians dispute Ada's contributions, but overall, there's a lot of conversation around her published notes. So much so that an early programming language was named after her. And she has a day in her honor every year, the second Tuesday in October.
0: If you want to read more about Ada's life, and honestly... There's a bunch of the story left to tell. Check out Ada's Algorithm by James Essinger.
1: Overall from this episode, I hit my goal. <laughs> I said when we started this show, I wanted to learn what an algorithm is. And I was kind of joking. And actually, in story time, I did learn what an algorithm is. <laughs> it, no, it's weird. Uh, I I feel like algorithm is one of those things where I sort of know around the context of what it is. But until today, I didn't really have a good definition of what exactly it was. And now I do. What about you? Did you have a a takeaway that you got
0: from this episode? You know, I had never really thought about VR that much, to be honest, and its many possibilities and usages and about really the impact it could have if, if more diverse people are in charge of VR and helping to craft it and shape it. So that really made me think about VR in a new way. Yeah, me too. Our show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon with help from Kimmy Gregory. Our
1: engineering and theme music are by Brendan Burns.
0: Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Catherine Seifer.
1: Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana.
0: Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher.
2: Ditcher